Hello everyone, it's February 12th, 2019. This week we got a couple of interplanetary CubeSats that have stopped talking to us. But we also have a data relay about composites and somebody who will talk to us about this most aerospace of aerospace topics. So let's talk about it and lift off. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 197 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So did you guys know, and this is barely news, that there was another... I saw it somewhere that there was an asteroid that passed close by. And by close, I mean like 600,000 kilometers yeah. of Earth. Ooh, yeah, somebody that. somebody on Reddit asked uh, what the limit is before NASA will issue a warning. And everybody's like, NASA doesn't issue asteroid impact warnings. <laughs> and they're like, well, what, what? how come I hear about some of them and not about others? It's like, well, because some of them we know they're coming and some of them we don't. And it also depends on how interesting the news on Twitter is that week. Like, I mean, right. <laughs> this one I don't think was that big, really. I mean, I guess it would have hit the ground, right? But mm -hmm. it would have been pretty small by that point. It was maybe like the size of a bus, which is really not that big. Yeah, yeah that's I, a scary sentence. Yeah, that yeah. that could mess up people. But so much of the Earth is like uninhabited, you know? Yeah. Yeah, 70% ocean, and then I think only, well, as far as cities go, 2% of the land is cities, something like that, 5%, um, or at least that densely populated. And, and the, the rest is Siberia. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Seemingly. <laughs> and up northern Canada, nice big targets up there. But you know, like, the two kind of really big asteroid hunting surveys are right around town here in Tucson. There's the Catalina, Catalina All-Sky Survey, and then Space Watch is the name of the other one. And uh, oh, that's cool. Yeah. So I actually got to check out the telescopes last semester, took students there for a field trip. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they're, they're not, they're just telescopes dedicated to hunting for asteroids. And from what I understand as a non-expert at that particular topic is that essentially all the big ones like Armageddon style, wipe out life on Earth, they've already figured out where all those are. Mm -hmm. And there's none of them that are going to be hitting Earth at any time in any reasonable time scale and so it's the smaller things though like something that you know could flatten out a forest might still you know hit the yeah. midwest somewhere well like i mean earth chelyabinsk is you know was small enough to not be in that group of of earth killers right i mm -hmm. mean like that could happen again over new york yeah and that hurt people mostly broken glass and all that right yeah how big was chelyabinsk before it hit the atmosphere uh chelyabinsk was was 20 meters okay um so space pod did a really really cool episode recently just talking about looking for these things it was episode 141 uh eyes on the back of your head with dr tholian and that was really good because they were talking about near-earth asteroids and uh, how you look for them and how for so long we were only looking for them at opposition from the sun. And mm. now we've learned to actually look in towards the sun and how difficult and mm -hmm. like you need to be a skilled telescope user. What What's that study called? T Telescopy? A skilled observer. <laughs> Astronomer. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> but that I, I want to refer our listeners to that because it was a really good episode. Yeah. I guess with that, let's move on to some other objects in space. But these ones, I believe, will be not... <laughs> not explodey. Not mm. giant killer rocks. Okay. Yeah. Uh, who are our winners? We don't have any winners. So um, we had a bunch of people guessing STS-99. The, the clue from last week was nearly a disaster. And a lot of people guessed STS-99 because they used twice the amount of fuel that they were expecting expecting to um, during the shuttle radar uh, topography mission or SRTM and several people guessed that uh, and they, they were all wrong. So during last week's recording, I didn't let this get into the 
into the final episode, but I, you know, showed you guys, hey, nearly a disaster is kind of a misspelling. It should be capital N-E-A-R, Leah disaster. Anyway, this week in spaceflight history is February 14th, 2000, near Shoemaker enters orbit of Eros. And this is an interesting one because there are so many dates in the near Shoemaker mission that fall within the next week, uh, just years apart, um, that I could have picked a number of different years, but I picked 2000. It was the successful entry of orbit. So uh, near stands for near Earth asteroid rendezvous. After lunch, they tacked on Shoemaker, who was an uh, astronomer, really glazing over uh, the su- success of this guy's uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, career by calling him an astronomer, but that's okay. So February 17th, 1996 was the launch. Um, they launched on a Delta 79258. So let me break this down because we love configuration numbers on the show. So the 7 stands for the 7000 series of Delta II. The 9 stands for the 9 solid boosters strapped around the outside. The 2 refers to the Aerojet AJ-10 powering the second stage. All Delta IIs after the 6000 series all had AJ-10s, so that 2 doesn't really change. And we can use the past tense here because we're not flying Delta IIs anymore. Uh, The 5, so 7925-8, the 5 stands for the Star 49B upper stage. It's, you know, the PAM payload assist module. We just talked about those a show or two ago. Um, And that that was the upper stage. And then the dash 8 refers to the fairing size. It's an 8 meter fairing. And of course, you can throw in an H and a couple letters in here. H refers to... uh, Uh, The heavy variant, which means bigger solid rocket boosters. And, you know, it's not as straightforward as as some of the other configuration number designations. But, you know, in in this case, it's it's pretty straightforward. So that was uh, February 17th, 1996, the 27th of June, 1997, the next year. They flew by 253 Matilda, which is a 61 kilometer uh, diameter C-type asteroid. It's a primitive C-type. Shoemaker is an S-type, just if that makes any difference. And during this flyby, they were able to get a 60% coverage just using photos of the surface. 60% of the surface they were able to photograph. Um, Then January 23rd, 1998, so that's the next year again, um, they flew past Earth and got a gravity assist. December 20th, 1998 was the first of four rendezvous burns. So they were going to do one big burn and then three small burns. And that was going to get them into orbit around their target. Did I, did I call their target Shoemaker? Cause their target is Eros. I think you said it was Eros. Okay. At the beginning, you did, you just, yeah. You, I actually think you didn't say anything originally. You just said, no, that, I, yeah. Yeah. I forgot. I forgot to say it. We're, we're going to Eros. So anyway, December 20th, we've, you know, getting ready to do the first capture burn. They fire up the engine. The engine shuts off very quickly, uh, which dumps the vehicle into safe mode. And, you know, we've talked about safe modes in the past. Um, In this case, there are a couple of different levels of safe mode um, that Nier could enter. And it kind of entered one of the highest level uh, safe modes, which means that it still tried to uh, maintain its uh, attitude and, you know, tried to behave like a spacecraft should. First, before we talk about the safe mode, the early uh, engine abort was caused by a lateral momentum threshold in the software being set too low. It's a human mistake. Uh, you're going to get some lateral momentum, um, just 
you know, that's the way rockets work. And in this case, it triggered on a safe amount of, of uh, lateral jiggling. So it triggers, goes in, goes in a safe mode. While it's in safe mode, uh, it experiences uh, a scripting error. So humans wrote, uh, not code, they wrote scripts, which are like, they, they build code, right? So it's, uh, they, they had a scripting error uh, that resulted in the vehicle not understanding its pointing direction very well. And there are, there are a couple of kind of complex things. There, there's a PDF that will be linked to in the show notes that's like 23 pages long. It goes into pretty heavy detail on all of these issues. It's really, really cool, worth a read. But let's just leave it at Scripting error caused um, the vehicle to do a bunch of momentum dumps. You know, you saturate. I, I believe this is related to saturating momentum wheels and then having to use your propellant to slow the wheels down while not spinning frantically in the opposite direction. <laughs> so anyway, they end up dumping 29 kilograms of propellant. And so that's that's equal to 96 meters per second of delta V. So this is a huge amount of delta V. And that ends up bringing their propellant margin down to zero. So they can complete the mission, but it has to be done perfectly. All this happened during 72 hours of non-communication. When it went into safe mode, uh, it starts pointing in the wrong direction, trying to correct its pointing and screwing up its pointing. So we don't hear from it. And it's about to go zipping past Eros where it's supposed to stop, you know? So eventually it gets kicked down into its lowest safe mode called the sun safe mode. I believe... I'm not 100% sure about this, but I believe it's because while it's tumbling, it started losing power because um, it wasn't pointing its solar cells at the sun. And so when it got below a certain threshold, sun safe mode kicked in and said, hey, we got to we got to breathe. You know, we got to get our head above water. So anyway, it goes in a sun safe mode and then it's able to be contacted and we're able to recover the satellite. But unfortunately, uh, because it lost so much power, it ended up having to delete a bunch of its data. So we don't have super accurate like failure logs or uh, like status logs. So we don't know exactly what happened. We can take a really good guess, but we're not 100% sure. And I think it actually lost some science data that it had collected up to that point. So it was intended to do its final insertion burn on January 10th, 1999. It ended up flying past... Eros and not going into orbit. Luckily, they were able to take some photos as they zip past, but they definitely did not enter orbit around Eros. So that's where the nearly a failure comes in, right? Uh, um, we have now lost, you know, quote unquote, lost the mission. We're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. So what they ended up doing, and this is really cool, is uh, instead of entering orbit on January 10th, on January 3rd, um, they were able to come up with what they called a makeup maneuver. And they spent some fuel uh, to change their orbit, um, but they basically matched orbits with Eros. And all they had to do was wait 13 months and they would be able to have a shot at, at entering orbit around Eros again. So on February 14th, 2000, they uh, successfully entered orbit of Eros and were able to do their main mission. And so this week in spaceflight history is February 14th when they 
successfully entered orbit. I love those second chances. <laughs> yeah. I think that was a good clue then, knowing... I thought you know, like so. Nearly, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good, I won't say pun, but if it was, it was a good one. So. <laughs> All right. So next week, what is our clue for next week? All right. Next week in 1964, the clue is Gemini. Single word clue this week. That'll be easier. So next week in 1964, <laughs> Gemini. Obviously, I mean, this might have something to do with the Gemini missions, but the word has to, mm-hmm. again... More like a pun, it has to do double duty. Yeah, you don't get to pick anything that happened in 1964 that related to the Gemini mission. Gemini program is is pretty big, so... Next week in 1964, Gemini. Um, If you think you know what that's about, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Good luck. Marco satellites are now silent. So these were the six U-CubeSats that were sent along with InSight. And I believe they were, what, the very first interplanetary CubeSats? Is that correct? I think so. I think they were. Uh, I mean, following the CubeSat standard, they weren't the first small satellite, I don't believe, to leave Earth. But yeah, definitely mm-hmm. the first CubeSats to leave Earth. And And before we go any farther, let's talk about the name. So it's Mars... It stands for Mars Cube One. So I can never remember the way that it's capitalized. It's capital M, lowercase a-r, capital C-O, Mars Cube One. For some Mm. reason, I always spell it capital M-A-R, lowercase C-O. I just caps the whole damn thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Same thing with um, Osiris Rex. I always have to look that one up because I'm not 100% sure. I just remember Regolith. Regolith Explorer. Yeah. You got to (laughs) remember. So there were two Marco CubeSats. Did you guys know that they were named after the robots in in the Disney movie WALL-E? WALL-E and Eve. Yeah, that's kind of hard to miss. I mean, assuming that you've seen the movie because I think everyone knows WALL-E. Well, I I feel like they didn't – like I I heard the names, but it it felt kind of weird because they didn't super use the names often. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I re-remembered when I saw this news story. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, re-remembered. Um, so Wally and Eve together cost 18.5 million, which is like a super low figure to go to Mars. It's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Wally uh, last contacted Earth on December 29th. Currently, it's 1 million miles past Mars or 1.6 million kilometers. Uh, and Wally is the special one of the two because it has a leaky thruster um, that they had to actually compensate for before they uh, flew past Mars. Eve was last heard from on January 4th. And Eve is 2 million miles past Mars. That's 3.2 million kilometers. So we haven't heard from them uh, in a while, but that doesn't mean that they're dead. I I don't know if you guys knew this, but we're actually going to try to contact them again in summer. How cool is that? I was just thinking, I mean, they're just going to be orbiting around the sun, so they might as well come back eventually. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's, that's why Kerbal Space Program is so amazing because like when I watched Apollo 13 as a kid, they said, oh, if you don't hit this, you know, uh, window, the size of a piece of paper, you'll go flying off into space. And that's true. They, they would have gone zipping around the earth and headed back out to the moon's orbit and they wouldn't have gotten home in time, uh, you know, just because they, um, had limited resources on board and, mm-hmm. and they it's a long trip to go back out to the moon but in my head as a kid you know i imagine them zipping off out into outer space until you know we flew past them in the enterprise you know uh like you know at some point in the future but yeah if 
you know, now that Kerbal Space Program is in pretty much everybody's head, you know <laughs> that if you if you miss Mars, which is what they did, right? Because they didn't want to hit Mars. If you miss Mars, you don't go flying out into interstellar space. You're still in an orbit around the sun and you're going to go out beyond Mars's orbit and then you're going to dip back down underneath it. So, yeah. So, like you said, they're they're just going to come around and, and they'll get closer to, to the sun. Interestingly enough, uh, their distance from the sun is not as important as their distance from the Earth. Um, so we th- there are a couple of reasons why we can't talk to them. We believe we're not 100 percent sure. Um, and we, we may never find out. Right. Because they, they might not make it back to their close your closer approach to earth they may they may just wear out in mm-hmm. uh in in between now and then but one of the main issues that nasa is worried about is the pointing precision needed to talk to earth on a high high gain antenna you have to get more and more precise the farther away from earth you are and they mm-hmm. think that there are well they think that there are possible attitude control issues with the satellites to begin with but as they you know which which will make them jiggle a little um, but even if they weren't jiggling, like it's hard enough to point yourself directly at Earth. And so that may be one of the issues why we just can't talk to them is they can't point at us precisely enough. So how close did you get a number for how close do they think they need to be for us to reacquire? They didn't. NASA's yeah. press release didn't say. I'm sure, you know, if we if we know in summer, we could calculate uh, their distance from Earth at that point. But I'm too lazy to do that. Because it'll take me a lot more work than it'll take some people. So somebody will figure sure, it out. Sure, sure, sure. You think about how much they accomplished with the flyby, mm-hmm. right? As far mm-hmm. as getting your money's mm-hmm. worth. Imagine if we could reacquire communication with them and have them, I don't know, do something else the next time they come zipping by Mars. Yeah, and I don't know if right? they're going to re-encounter Mars um, at least anytime soon. Maybe they're just going to sit out there. But yeah, it'd be really cool if we could get a, a second money's worth out of them. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. I think that that is the idea because now that the primary mission is over, they're actually being used more so like for seeing how the hardware holds up. And right. this is a good test bet for seeing how you make CubeSats. They can go to some other part of the system and, mm-hmm. you know, be used years down the line. I don't know if you said this. I don't think so. But are these solar powered? Yes. Okay. I think I had read that one possibility for why there might not be any more communication is because if they can't track the sun properly, well, then obviously they'll lose power. And I don't know if a cold restart is possible or how that would ever work with a CubeSat. I'm not sure, but that could be an issue. So, you know, I, I'm not a model builder. I would love to be at some point. Uh, but I would I would love to build replicas of spacecraft. Um, I, I've 3D printed replicas, but I haven't like actually tidied them up. If I was mm-hmm. gonna like pick one that I wanted to start with, it would have to be the Marco satellites because they're <laughs> so pretty. Um, they've got that um, weird uh, like Fresnel lens flat. Uh, high gain antenna and you know a six u cubesat is like a nice size because it's chunky but it's mm-hmm. not huge and then you know solar wings to stick out i don't know i think they're really pretty specifically they're a three by three uh six u cubesat right so that would be a nine u they're two by i think three. yeah three by two <laughs> i'm sorry i meant three by two yeah <laughs> that's what a six u cubesat is there aren't any one by yeah. six i don't believe yeah because i was kind of curious about that like it doesn't seem like a good configuration but i mean i don't see why not but i suppose it's the, not very the toothpaste <laughs> tube configuration yeah Mm-hmm. That'd be kind of neat, just like a big long stick out in space. <laughs> I mean, it, it might be handy for uh, like electrical potential experiments in a in a in a heavy magnosphere. 
what's it called mm -hmm. when you're in the magnetic field of a magnetosphere magnetosphere i was close yeah. or i suppose with the six you you can make it kind of like a big l shape you know like oh, i mean again i i don't know why one would do that but yeah you're just picking tetris pieces at this point aren't exactly you? yeah yeah <laughs> well and, and remember that the nice thing about a cubesat is that they have deployers already built for them. So an L-shaped would actually be really bad for fitting in a standard mm. deployer ah. that's built for two by three. But I mean, you you could do it if you wanted to. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, just, I'm just thinking of weird random shapes that you could stack and, you know, make all kinds of strange things. Yeah, none of which are valid in the CubeSat standards. But, you know, <laughs> sure, you could you can make one of those Z pieces that nobody likes. <laughs> yeah. Now, what about having like, you know, them like perform their main mission as one, let's say a 6U, and then they boom, split into two 3Us and are able to do something else, and then boom, split into six 1Us. Well, then, I mean, then you'd, you'd really have to build three one or six 1Us and, and glue them together because each one would have to be operable on its own. I don't see it happening. <laughs> I'm sorry. It, it'll happen uh, in a superheroes movie at some point. Let's do three short and sweet. So what's the first one, Ben? All right. ISS suffers another leak, but this time of the messy, non-dangerous type. I think we stole this headline. Yes. Uh, <laughs> approximately 11 liters of water leaked into the International Space Station during work to prepare for the future installation of the urine transfer system. Rerouting a power cable required the temporary removal of the WHC cabin, i.e. the toilet, while demating the quick disconnect that supplies potable water to WHC, the leak occurred. Astronauts on station were able to clean up the water using a significant number of towels, and all relevant racks and equipment are now checked out and in a nominal configuration. Up next, uh, NASA seeks a human-rated lunar lander. On February 7th, NASA formally published a request for a proposal seeking collaboration with private industry for a human-rated lunar lander that will be fully reusable and sustainable. The three factors outlined to achieve this are transfer landing and safe return, which would involve using the Lunar Gateway. A key requirement for full reusability would be in-situ refueling on the moon, but for now NASA expects only partial reusability for two of the three lander elements. Testing is expected to begin by 2024 with human landings by 2028. So that's kind of cool, and I guess by two of the three elements, meaning that there's going to be three, just like the old lunar lander, you're going to have a part that stays on the lunar surface. It's not going to come back, I guess, because you can't, because that'd just be dead weight. Oh, well, I mean, it's, it's cool that we're going there. Maybe. Maybe nothing, dude. We need to get back to the minute. It's too damn close. I'm saying NASA, maybe. Like, I'm not saying maybe, because, oh. you know, oh, the whole okay. lunar yeah. gateway. All right. We're good. Yeah. We're on the same page. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, I'll go. Updated shape model of 2014 MU69 surprises planetary scientists. After examining initial images from the New Horizons flyby of 2014 MU69 at the beginning of the year, scientists learned the Kuiper Belt object had a two-lobe shape reminiscent of a snowman. However, recently released images from 10 minutes after closest approach have resulted in an update of that shape model. The object is significantly more flattened, described as a pancake attached to a walnut. While such shapes are not unprecedented for moons, understanding Mu-69's formation in a relatively isolated part of the solar system will require more data from the spacecraft. Yeah, it's a cool-looking shape. Weird-looking. You know, and I was thinking, how is this one going to be bizarre and surprise us? Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Mm -hmm. 
question, comments, and correction burns. We got a couple things to discuss. Uh, first one is the the SFSF shop giveaway. Yeah, la- last week we talked about how we're partnering with SFSF.shop to get you guys some t-shirts. So one of the things we're going to do is we're going to do a giveaway of a t-shirt. So keep an eye on our Twitter. That's twitter.com slash orbital podcast. We'll put a tweet out this week. If you retweet it, uh, we'll put you on a list. And at the end of the week, we will select a winner and send them a t-shirt. Cool. So um, Free t-shirts. Yeah, free t-shirts. If you want to pay for your t-shirt like an upstanding citizen, uh, <laughs> it's uh, sfsf.shop slash support hyphen Tom. And that'll be in the show notes. And just because it's hard to pronounce in here, uh, it's S-F-S-F. So it's just S-F twice because... It's kind of hard to, to parse you know, like, the you know, stuff, 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 stuff. SFSF. Yeah. It's like, is like it... San Francisco, San Francisco dot shop. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds like FSFS, but it's SFSF. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, they almost sound exactly the same. Uh, Sierra Foxtrot, Sierra Foxtrot. There you go. Yeah. Sierra Hotel Oscar Papa. And then do you want you want to talk about this next one? So Jim Wagner on Twitter sent us a link. So we got a tweet to a really cool website. And again, the name is random. It's called realcoffeemaker.com. It has nothing to do with coffee. Uh, but this has a uh, pronunciation guide for all things, uh, I guess, like China spaceflight related, which we, you know, I think we've done a pretty good job. We don't always get the tones right, but at least we know phonetically how to say and these things. And when we when we mispronounce things, we it's usually that we know that we're mispronouncing and it's just like we're just gonna westernize this right but it's a it has a list of the words both in pinyin and then in chinese and then a little play button and you click it and then it'll give you a proper pronunciation really i guess if you're interested maybe in just like boning up on your chinese which i occasionally do like i kind of have these little spurts because i just like languages so i'll dive into trying to learn some chinese and uh and then I become obsessed with sites like this. So. <laughs> well, that's perfect for you then. So next, um, let me do a little sound here. Oh, that didn't sound nearly as good as I thought it was going to. So this week, uh, the three of us got uh, gifts from a friend of the show. At one point during the shutdown, we had done a little giveaway on Twitter um, because we found somebody who was trying to make a little money. Her name is Nancy. She takes glassware and etches uh, logos onto them. And so she was offering some custom glassware on Twitter. And, you know, we're like, hey, it's, you know, not that expensive. Let's do a little giveaway. And we gave away a a couple of mugs to some listeners. After the shutdown ended, she got back in touch. She's like, hey, I want to say thank you. So she sent us uh, each um, some big glass steins with our logo on them. And they're gorgeous. Have you guys ever tried etching glass? No. It's really hard. It's really, really, really hard. Um, and I talked to her a little bit about her methods, and she's doing it the hard way, and I don't know how she's able to make them look so good. Oh, but wow. they look fantastic. And so I was like, hey, well, we kind of talked a little bit, and it turns out we both had the same idea. Let's um, add these to our store. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a link in the store. I got to go get a nice photo. It's hard to photograph etched glass really well, so what I want to do is put a can of beer in it, and I want to wait until I can get that. Well, I want to wait till I can get that Bennu beer from you, and I'll just put the Bennu can in there because it's nice and dark. But anyway, so it's not gonna. we're not going to have a link in our shop until I can get a good photo because uh, I got to do it on a white background so it'll actually work on the website, yada, yada. But anyway, we don't make profit off of any of our merch. Uh, we sell it at cost. Um, if you want to support us, go to Patreon or go to our support page and, you know, donate Bitcoin or whatever. Um, so we're going to give these away or we're not going to give them away. We're going to list them in our store, uh, until that happens, you can either talk to her on Twitter. Uh, her 
Twitter account is Nancy Carey PR. We'll have a link in the show notes, or you can go to her website, uh, which is fancy Nancy gifts and just tell her you want something from us. She'll charge you whatever she's going to charge you. I think she was, I mean, she was, she was quoting some pretty reasonable prices and all the money will go to her and supporting her maker attitude. Cause you know, we love makers, but yeah, we'll, we're going to have uh, big beer steins and some wine glasses. I don't know what else she's going to, uh, offer, but um, go check her out. That's they. I mean, they seriously look good. These. Well, I don't know what the definition of a stein is, but this is kind of like one of those, I guess. Or does a stein have to have like a like a little the cap lid. on it? I don't know. All the that lid, ornate yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, very ornate. But I, I mean, it's big enough to be one, though. It's it's this has got to yeah, be. Yeah, it's a big it's a big beer mug. I mean, like because mm-hmm. not yeah the the etching's beautiful and it's like a nice big solid strong piece of glass. Yeah, I'm drinking iced tea out of mine right now and it feels really good. Uh, I feel like I could really sing a beer song with this. <laughs> um, and then last, we have a quick little announcement. We're going to talk more about this later, but we're on the radio. <laughs> not a, not a big radio. Uh, if you go to ideafablabs.com slash maker hyphen radio, and there'll be a link in the show notes because who can type that? My makerspace, uh, Idea Fab Labs, just got a 100-watt transmitter on their roof. So if you're in downtown Chico, you can hear us. It's 94.5 FM KWQA. And um, right now they're just playing uh, like techno music because we're working on getting a computer set up that can uh, do playlists. And it's really cool. It's the software that we have is like going to be able to do like scheduling and stuff, but they need material. And I was like, Hey, I put out like an hour plus every (laughs) week. Uh, And they're like, yes, absolutely. So Right now, they're just going to be playing some random interviews uh, and data relay uh, episodes, um, the, you know, the whole episode, but they're just going to be playing them kind of randomly. You can hear them streaming at ideafablabs.com slash maker hyphen radio. Um, and then eventually um, they're going to do like a big, like grand opening. And then our new episodes will be aired Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. No, there's no reason why you need to go listen to them streaming. It's just really cool. That is um, cool. Yeah. So it's streaming online. And then if you're in Chico, you can listen to it. I, I have not yet set a favorite in my car, but I will just so I can <laughs> flip over to it while I'm in range. It's, it's like how, you know, life came from the waters to be the first land animals and then <laughs> whales went back to the water. So mm-hmm. radio made it to the internet as podcasts. And now yeah. we, the internet podcasts are going back yeah. to the radio. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Okay, so today we're going to talk about composites with Ben Cruz, uh, another Ben. This is our second Ben in a row, so welcome. Thanks for having me. Composites is something that I think is maybe like one of the more interesting topics, but it's the one that I probably know the least about. So this is going to be a real lesson. Before we get going, this is Ben's first data relay. So Ben, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, so I am the third or fourth Ben. Now, uh, I'm a stress analyst at, at Bell Flight, formerly Bell Helicopter, and I work with composites on a day-to-day basis, so I have a little bit of a background here. I still definitely learned a lot researching this, so I hope I can help you guys out too. Uh, so I guess we'll just jump in here. Composites, uh, composite materials, they've actually been in use for thousands of years. The first documented use goes back to the Mesopotamians. They glued strips of wood or straw into bricks to make the bricks stronger. Uh, Egyptians used something similar, uh, reinforced clay and mud. And Romans actually 
used concrete and mortar very extensively, a lot of which is still standing today. So there's a lot of composites that are used uh, even in building materials in ancient times. So knowing that right now, do any of you guys have a good definition for what is a composite material? <laughs> oh. I guess it's that you have you have something within a substrate, right? Is that a better way of putting it? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. A composite material is, in general, just two or more materials that are physically combined together. So that's all you really need to call something a composite. <gasps> Ooh, so uh, human bodies are composites then, right? Yes, human bodies are composites. <laughs> Wood is a composite. Concrete is a composite. Uh, Spray-on insulation is a composite. Fiberglass canoes, carbon fiber tennis rackets, a lot of IKEA furniture uh, is usually like wooden chips that are pressed together with glue. So, yeah, whether you like that or not, that's also a composite. So they're very widely used, more so than we think about them. And I think the reason is that a lot of the time people will reference composites, and they're really talking about carbon fiber laminates. So we'll get into that later. But that's probably the most widely used portion, and it's what people think about. So, digging into this a little bit more, there's some components that make up a composite. We call those the matrix and the reinforcement. So, the matrix is basically the glue that holds everything together. It's going to transfer thermal load or mechanical load to the reinforcement. And the reinforcement is the part that you want to be very particular about. You select it for its specific material properties. So whether you're going for stiffness or electrical resistivity, thermal conductance, uh, or maybe you're going for abrasion resistance for coating or something like that, those are the two parts, the matrix and the reinforcement. So most of what we're going to talk about today is going to be breaking down composite classification, like what are the different types of composites uh, and why all of the language that goes around them uh, as you can imagine this is a really big topic, so we won't have time to get into all of it today, but I'll do the best I can. So there's probably four different categories of composites. Uh, there's fibrous composites, there's laminates, there's particulate, and then there's hybrids. Fibrous composites are just fibers that are in a matrix. So paper mache, it's paper fabric is the reinforcement, and the glue that you use to glue it together is the matrix. Uh, there's also fiber-reinforced plastics. So that would be chopped fibers of maybe it's fiberglass, maybe it's carbon fiber or something else. And you mix it in with your melted plastic whenever you're doing some injection molding or some thermoforming, and that makes the plastic stronger. So these are commonly used in automotive applications, uh, maybe even some consumer goods. And I included a little note here in, in our notes. A lot of times there's a material marking on plastics. I looked at the back of my calculator, and, and it had a material marking. Most of the time, this isn't going to be... It, it's not going to tell you that it's a composite, but it's just a cool little thing to look on your, your own stuff and see what material it's made of. Now that is cool. I notice those all the time and never really <laughs> knew what the hell they were referencing. Uh, yeah, and I, I think um, understanding plastic composition markings is like a superpower, because like you'll see people go, oh, well, it's got the, this and then that, and it's uh, that means it's this kind of plastic. But in this case, it's actually not too hard to figure out ben you want to talk about the like there's there's something coded in this little example you gave us right no it's really not hard at all most of the time you'll look for a circle and it'll have uh, a greater than sign on one side and a less than sign on the other side and there'll be some letters in the middle and that the letters are just going to be what type of plastic it is uh, it might be abs or 
PP for polypropylene, or it might be PC for polycarbonate. If you want to tell whether it's a composite, you can just look for the letters GF and maybe some number, and that's just going to tell you that it has glass fibers in it, and usually the number is the percentage by mass or volume. So like my calculator that I gave an example of, it doesn't, it doesn't have glass fiber in it, because why would a calculator need that? But you can see that I think it was polypropylene. So that's fibrous composites. Uh, I don't have any more examples of those, but you can kind of look around and maybe you'll find them. Next topic's going to be laminates. Laminates are just layers of material that are bonded together. So think about sheets. If you have uh, plywood, where there's different layers of wood that, that are glued together. And laminates are probably one of the more common types of composites. Like I mentioned before, this is usually what we're talking about when we, when we say a composite material. And the laminate category itself is also very broad, so we, we can subcategorize laminates into things like sandwich panels, or maybe we're talking about thick or, or a thin laminate. Laminates are composed of plies or laminae, L-A-M-I-N-A-E. These all mean the same thing, it's just different ways to refer to it. Uh, we'll talk about laminates in a little bit more detail later on. Third type of composites are particulate, and these are just particles that are suspended in a matrix. So a really good example of this one is going to be concrete. Uh, concrete is just a combination of stones, gravel, sand, and it's just held together by cement. So concrete in particular is powerful in compressive forces, right? And it's really good at that because of the the bits of stone that you put in there, basically. Do most particulate composites exhibit good compressive strength, or are there examples of particulate composites that have good tensile strength as well? Uh, when you think about compressive versus tensile strength, the tensile strength is going to be taken by the matrix, so that cement would be taking the tensile strength, and it's going to have a very low tensile, ultimate tensile strength. So I would say in general, uh, particulates are going to be much stronger in compression. As we'll see with laminates, they're going to be much stronger in tension because the long fibers uh, will, will take the, the tensile load and the matrix is going to just transfer that load between the layers. So laminates and, and particulates are kind of opposite in, in that regard. But since you mentioned, since we're talking about concrete, uh, there's a really great YouTube channel called Practical Engineering. Yes. And he does a, he's doing a whole series on concrete, which at first you might think is really boring, but he shows you, hey, this, this concrete is really strong in compressive load and, and it's horrible in tension. What can we do to fix that? And goes through what we do uh, in everyday life. So very great YouTube channel, very great series. Another example of particulates are going to be solid rocket propellants. So I, I think I got this right. I had to look this one up. Uh, solid propellants consist of inorganic particles suspended in an organic matrix. Uh, and the reason that, that we want to point out that solid rocket propellants are, are a composite uh, is because you want to really look at the stresses that happen when you're burning those because the shape of the nozzle, as I think we've talked about before, uh, is going to determine how quickly it burns and, and how much thrust you get out of the, the solid motor. And when you're burning that material away, you want to make sure that it doesn't break up into clumps because that'll give you some combustion instability. Uh, and the last category is going to be hybrids, which is just a combination of two or more. I don't really have any examples here because a lot of this is still in research, but it would be something like laying up a carbon fiber part and then injecting like a fibrous plastic onto that part and bonding it together. Sometimes that would be advantageous. Uh, like I said, it's still in research, so 
there's I don't have any practical examples at all. Before we go on, Ben, I have a question for you. So you had mentioned that laminates and particulates are basically kind of opposite each other in terms of compressive versus tensile strength. Does fibrous composites, do they, do they fit somewhere neatly into that? So fibrous would be a little bit of a middle ground. If you need a little bit more, if you need a little bit more strength in your part, uh, but you don't want to switch to something that's really complicated like laying up a carbon fiber laminate, you could probably put some fibers into your plastic mix. And so some more examples of fibrous would be like automotive floorboards or uh, recreational vehicle floorboards. Uh, you need those to stand up to some more stresses because you're stepping on them and jumping up and down and things. So you need a little bit more, but it's not really worth going full laminate. So it's more of a middle ground, I would say. Okay, so we've talked about some general classifications here, but we haven't really talked about why we use composites. Composites are definitely used a lot in aerospace, and it's mainly because of weight and loads. So aircraft, spacecraft, launch vehicles, they see very high loading, and they, uh, spacecraft especially see high thermal loading, and composites are thermally stable, uh, which is a fancy way to say that they don't expand or contract a lot when you heat them up. So sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's actually bad, which maybe we'll, we can talk about in a minute. Uh, composites offer ways to increase strength, uh, decrease weight, and manage structural effects of thermal loads. Composites, especially carbon fiber, they also allow you to, to tailor the way that your structure takes the load. So if we talk about a monocoque structure where the skin is taking all of that load, uh, you can you can tailor that with laying up your your fibers in a certain direction so that when you when you're flying through the air you take a certain angle of attack your wings bend that bending will be taken up along the axis of the wing instead of in some different angle this is a material property called orthotropy compared to isotropy which is a little bit more advanced but basically the fibers are pointed in one direction the direction that they're pointed in is going to be the direction that they're really strong in and if you think about 90 degrees from that they're going to be really weak in that direction. So if you point them in the right direction, you can take advantage of that. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned wood as being a composite because I didn't really think about it, but you're you're totally right. Like and the kind of the proof in the pudding is that wood behaves very differently cross-section or cross-grain versus end-grain. So that's really interesting. Yeah, that's the same effect right there. I guess it's like nature taking advantage of that particular property, which is yeah. exactly, you know, why trees are the way they are. Okay, so I mentioned laminates are the most common uh, they're the most widely used. So I want to take a minute here and dig into some laminates, some more specific examples, and break them down a little bit more. So laminates is what I call the carbon fiber category. Uh, so everybody's heard of carbon fiber, and we use it everywhere. Uh, if you're looking at a carbon fiber part, it would be a laminate composite, a laminated composite. And before we dig in more, I'd like to throw out another YouTube channel. Uh, so we talked about practical engineering, and now I'm going to talk about real engineering. He does a great video about carbon fiber, breaks down all of this stuff again if you're more of a visual person. Awesome to watch. So carbon fiber composites are used a lot in airframes, space frames, because of their, their high stiffness, their high strength, and how light they are. So some examples here. Spaceship 2 from, is it Virgin Orbital or Virgin Flight? Yeah, Virgin Galactic. Virgin Galactic, yeah. Whatever it is. <laughs> Spaceship 2, uh, it, that is an entirely carbon fiber frame. Uh, they have some really cool pictures uh, where they, they laid the whole thing up and you can see that it's all black and, and it has that carbon fiber look to it. So it's a very lightweight frame. The Space Shuttle Orbiter, 
was most conventional was mostly conventional aluminum, but some parts, specifically the payload doors, they were sandwich panels with aluminum honeycomb and carbon fiber face sheets. So we'll we'll, we'll talk about sandwich panels in just a second. But spaceship or uh, the space shuttle orbiter had several different types of composites in it, and they replaced even more as time went on. NASA engineers discovered that they could use these materials to get rid of all of their aluminum. Well, not all of it. They could get rid of a lot of their aluminum and save some weight. So they replaced the, the body flap, which is the trapezoidal part that protects the engines during reentry. They replaced that with a carbon honeycomb sandwich panel. I think they replaced some more with, with, with carbon fiber specifically, but I couldn't find any more sources on that. One of the most advanced composite commercial airframes to date was probably the 787 Dreamliner from Boeing. That's a, it's a huge plane and they, the airframe is 50% carbon fiber by weight, which when you think about how light carbon fiber is compared to aluminum, that's a lot of carbon fiber. Uh, another one, going back to NASA, they started the composite crew module where they wanted to take, they took the Apollo capsule, and they took that as the basic design, and they remade the whole capsule with uh, carbon fiber. They actually tested this. Uh, they got very promising results. They pumped it full of a lot of water and made sure that it could take the 15 PSI from the International Space Station, and they tested it to full failure, and there were pretty promising results. The source that I found on this was back during the Constellation program, so I don't know how it's being developed today, but there were, there were good results back when they were actually testing. Another example is going to be the Falcon 9 payload fairing. I believe it's an aluminum honeycomb sandwich, but it's a little harder to find sources on that one. Dragon Heat Shield is also a composite. We talk about that a lot here. Subcategorizing laminates even further. We can talk about physical geometry. We can talk about matrix material. Uh, and we can talk about manufacturing method. So if we break it down by physical geometry, we've got three different subcategories. We've got thin laminates, thick laminates, pretty simple. And then we have that sandwich panel that I was referring to. So uh, Thick and thin, you kind of get that. It's just whether you want to analyze it by a certain method or not. Uh, sandwich panels are more interesting because it's made of a face sheet and a core. So a face sheet is going to be your typical laminate. If we think back to plywood, you've got layers there and kind of we can assume it like a plate. Layers of a plate and they're stacked on top of each other. If we take that piece of plywood and we stack it onto core material, which is pointed out of plane, and then we take that and we stack it on another piece of plywood, you create a sandwich material. So it's this is best seen visually. Uh, I include some links in the show notes, but it's, it's pretty easy to see once you see a cross-section of it. Uh, the reason that you want a sandwich panel is because you can separate the face sheets. The face sheets carry a lot of load in plane, and the face sheets carry a lot of load in plane, and the core material can help you carry load out of plane. So core materials are typically lighter. They can be aluminum honeycomb, uh, syntactic resin. They can be fiberglass, Kevlar, some closed cell foams. Uh, they could even be uh, honeycomb phenolic paper. So it's just a, a paper core that they also impregnate with resin. So it, it's this really flimsy stuff. And when you look at it, you don't think that it can take anything. But when you combine it with the face sheets, it actually has very high strength. Now, I, I wonder, because I'm looking at this PDF that you've got, and some of these structural diagrams almost look like corrugated cardboard. And I wonder if you could just take some cardboard, fill it with resin, and I, want, I wonder how strong that would end up being. That would probably be pretty strong. 
Corrugated cardboard is uh, is a type of sandwich panel. I mean, it's right. I guess you could technically call it a composite because you have a glue that you that you attach oh, the, yeah. the cardboard with. <laughs> right. But, <laughs> but it's a it's a cardboard cardboard sandwich panel. Yeah, I forgot about the glue. Otherwise, I was like, yeah. Well, I mean, it it's maybe composite with itself, but a <laughs> uh, um, um, mono material composite, which is. Yeah, a contradiction in terms. <laughs> it actually kind of is a a monocomposite, if that's a term. because yeah, you got, That's why they're made that way. Yeah, s- single material, but but multiple physical shapes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mentioned IKEA furniture before, and I was actually building a piece of IKEA furniture, and it gets shipped, and it's all flat packed. So if you look at some of the packaging materials, they have these big carbon fiber sandwich panels, and they're used to to keep the strength out of plane hmm. so that when you're tossing it around and shipping, it doesn't bend all that much. So it, it helps to protect the actual furniture pieces and keep the whole thing from bending and flexing too much. And talking about corrugated cardboard, there is some research going on. I found a couple of papers. I linked one, but you kind of imagine carbon fiber, or you kind of imagine corrugated cardboard, but instead of cardboard, replace everything with carbon fiber. So it's, it has some of the same properties, but it's just much stronger because it's made out of carbon fiber. And I guess what actually makes it strong, besides that fact, is that when something is corrugated, you basically have, you have like structurally what's a triangle in between those two layers. That seems pretty simple, but that is why it's structurally more sound, just because you have a series of triangles created by that corrugation. Yeah, and because it's, it's just the triangles instead of a typical core, they're, they're still aligned in the same direction as your face sheets, but they're made in the shape of those triangles. So you get the benefits of the core. It's a little bit lighter weight, and you can get even some, some more advanced properties like uh, damage tolerance, where it can crack in, in the middle and it won't continue out beyond the legs of your triangle. So I think that's one of the reasons that they were researching in the paper that I found, but it's been a while since I read it. Uh, main contribution of the core, like I said, getting back to why we're talking about it, is, is that it separates the face sheets. So if you think about an I-beam, just think about a steel I-beam versus a steel square bar. And if you were to try and bend that I-beam, it's going to take a lot more force to bend it rather than the bar. All a sandwich panel really is, is an I-beam in two dimensions. Okay, so we're, we're talking about laminate still. We, we just got diverted talking about cores and sandwich panels. But another important part of composites in general is going to be the matrix material. So matrix material also has multiple classifications. Uh, it can be a polymer matrix, a ceramic, or a metallic. A polymer matrix is going to be the most common type of at least laminate. We usually talk about carbon fiber epoxy laminates. The epoxy is is a polymer, uh, but it doesn't have to be epoxy. It can be any type of plastic. So it can be a thermoplastic or it could be a thermoset. Do you guys know the difference between those two? I think it's when you apply the heat, right? A a thermoplastic resin is uh, squishy at high temperatures and a thermoset resin is hard at high temperatures. That is exactly correct. Yay! Ding, ding, ding! You got it. (laughs) One point for Ben. (laughs) So it can be either of those types and there's some cases where you'd want to use one over the other. Most commonly we see thermosets, so it's either it's some type of epoxy. So 
I've had some recent experience with something like this at the dentist. I'm sure we've all, you know, had this at one point or another, or I guess at least if your teeth are as bad as mine. But they use some kind of a resin that, that they actually expose to a UV light, and that causes it to harden, like, very, very quickly, like, you know, within 10 seconds, mm-hmm. which I think is amazing because it's just a UV light that they shine in your mouth, and then it hardens that resin. So I guess that would be something like a thermoset, except that it doesn't really heat up, or at least not, you know, something that you could feel. Uh, it's just being exposed to UV light. But uh, I'm just wondering what kind of a resin that is because that's that's pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, so that stuff would just be a UV-cured thermoset resin. Yeah. So if we shaped a bunch of carbon fiber in the shape of your tooth and then shine the UV light on it after putting this resin in, you could have a carbon fiber tooth. I'll take one. That's, that, <laughs> that sounds awesome. So uh, polymer matrix composites, or PMCs, this is the field where we'd, where we'd classify PICA. Uh, Pika X, those are both uh, PMCs. Pika just stands for phenolic impregnated carbon ablator. So it's a carbon fiber laminate with a phenolic resin matrix. Uh, next type of matrix material, like I mentioned before, is uh, ceramic matrix or CMCs, ceramic matrix composites. Ceramics in general, not like not including composites, ceramics are very heat resistant. So CMCs make a lot of sense when you're talking about areas where it's very hot. So combustion chambers, re-entry vehicles for heat shields, they're very good for thermal soak and passively cooled systems. So going back to the shuttle orbiter, the uh, the TPS on the shuttle was was mostly composite. What we think of a lot is the reinforced carbon-carbon. So that would be a, a carbon matrix with a carbon reinforcement. It's very strong, but it's very heavy. So they use these on the leading edges of the shuttle orbiter, and they use these on I believe it was the nose. So the way that they make these, the, the reinforced carbon-carbon, is they you start out with a normal PMC, and you kind of stick that into an oven, and the process is, is called pyrolyzation, which I think is just a fancy word to say that they bake off all of the resin. <laughs> so you're just left with the carbon in the shape of what you made it to be. So they put it in a, in a vacuum chamber, and they bake it. So that's they make reinforced carbon-carbon, and they use that on on the shuttle TPS. Uh, the problem with it, it was that it was very heavy. So it's about 28 times denser than most of the heat shielding on the shuttle. So the, the, the rest of the heat shielding was HRSI, which is High Temperature Reusable Surface Tile Insulation. So I, I linked to a PDF from NASA, and they have a really nice graphic here showing the orbiter and then where all of the different TPS was used. So there were the reinforced carbon-carbon, the high temperature reusable surface tile insulation, surface insulation tile, that's a mouthful. And then they had low temperature reusable, and then they had some kind of blankets that they used over over the rest of the areas. So the RCC was 28 times denser, so they used this HRSI tiles, which were mostly silica with a glass coating. So the HRSI, these are the tiles that are on the belly. These are the black tiles that are all over the belly. Ben referenced them as the the cubes that you can heat up to glowing red and they won't burn your skin, uh, that's these tiles. So the reason that they that they don't burn your skin when they're so hot is because they're 90% air. So they, they soak up a lot of heat and they have a very low thermal conductance. So that makes them very good for these thermal soak heat shield designs. The 10% that isn't air is the silica foam. And the problem with the silica foam was that it was very friable, which means that it just breaks off into tiny parts, kind of like a, 
a styrofoam. So the way that they got around that was they made it into a composite. They added a glass coating on the outside, so the glass coating would keep it from shredding apart, and the silica foam would absorb all the heat. So that was most of the TPS on the shuttle. Uh, CMCs, they're also good for other high heat areas. They're not just used for heat shields. So areas like uh, Formula One brake discs, you see them on TV, they're black. They heat up like bright red when, when they're going around turns. There's a car, I don't know exactly what type of CMCs, but I know that they're ceramics. Uh, gas turbine blades can also be used as CMCs. There's some research by GE going on right now to, to replace, or I think they call it the CMC turbine project because they're, they're very creative. And combustion chambers, they're great places for CMCs. Very high heat. Uh, hopefully your combustion chamber isn't taking a lot of mechanical load. You have a frame around it. So combustion chambers would be a great place for, for CMCs. Carbon-carbon CMCs, uh, so going back to what the, the shuttle leading edge of the, the wings were made of, those can also be used in place of some metallic machinings. So they're, they're very heavy compared to the rest of the heat shield tiles, but they're still a little bit lighter than some machinings, and you can make them the same way, where you make a big block of material, you bake it until all of the, the resin is gone, and then you can machine it down to whatever shape you want it to be. So fittings to hold on payloads, uh, fittings to attach a wing to something else. You can use these machinings to, to attach them and in some cases save weight. So carbon-carbon is, I think we've all heard it used. In fact, at one point we were talking to, oh, uh, Firefly Aerospace. That was back when they were Firefly Space Systems. And they mentioned they used carbon-carbon for their engine nozzles, I believe. So is carbon-carbon still a composite if you burn off all of the resin? Uh, yes. Uh, I think the point is you're burning off nearly all of the resin. So, in, and when you pyrolyze it in, in the vacuum, there's some process that I'm not very familiar with that allows the carbon to transfer load more directly and it needs less resin. But that's not an area that I know as much about and I couldn't find... Well, we could we could go into the process more, but I think that would take a long time. Yeah, right. So, yes, I think it, it is technically a a ceramic matrix composite, even though uh, you start with a polymer composite. You just bake off nearly all of it. Yeah, Wikipedia says that the layup is heated so that pyrolysis transforms the binder to relatively pure carbon. So I think that relatively is, is important there. So Firefly's example of an engine nozzle, it, it makes sense if you were going for some sort of passively cooled nozzle, mm -hmm. whether it's, it's ablative or if you can somehow soak all of the heat into the nozzle. That, that would make a lot of sense. Uh, nozzles also, you're, you're generally going to try and protect them from debris and any sort of mechanical load. So they don't have to be very flexible, which ceramics are not known for being flexible. So that's, <laughs> that's another reason that you can use them. Okay, so this one's also pretty cool. Aerospace Defense Tech. I think this is part of NASA tech briefs, but there was some research on weaving in silica and carbon, or maybe it's silica carbide, but you weave it together and it has, it's, it's very strong and it can take a lot of heat. And they were using this to replace some, some burners in jet engines. So again, mm. it's, it's a high temp environment and it can stand up to all of that heat because it can soak it all up. So that's, that's ceramic matrix composites. The last category here is one that I, again, I don't know very much about and I couldn't find more about this. I think it's it's not as widely used right now, but they're metallic matrix composites, or MMCs. 
the best example that I can that I can find is going to be any any metal that you plate. Anything that's plated would be technically a metallic matrix composite. That doesn't matter for most of the time, so I couldn't find any real examples beyond that. But it's interesting to think about. We might see some more research in the, in the coming years. So that is basics of, of composites classification. I focused a lot on laminates and ceramics because those are the, the two interesting areas and they're the ones that are the most widely used. If we talk about just laminates, well, if we talk about any type of composite, there's going to be a ton of ways to actually manufacture them. And I didn't list them all here because there's more than I even know about, but we'll go through a couple of the most common. So if you're making a laminate, you typically, you want to, in general, you lay out the fabric on a tool and then you will either impregnate that, that fabric with resin or it will be pre-impregnated or what you'll often see what you will often see abbreviated as prepreg. So this can be a fabric, it can be a piece of tape, uh, but you'll lay that out in the shape that you want and then you will have to cure it. So there's a bunch of different ways that you can do this. Most of the time you're putting, you're putting the impregnated fabric into a vacuum chamber or you're putting it into an autoclave, which is a pressurized oven. So when we're talking about this curing process or this, this layup process in general, there's vacuum bag molding, there's compression molding, filament winding, there's, automi- there's automated fiber placement machines, resin transfer molding, and then there's a bunch of out-of-autoclave methods that you can go to, too. All of these are just going to be slight variations. So with a vacuum bag, you lay, it up, you lay up your fabric on the tool, and then you'll have a bag over it. You'll pull vacuum on the bag. The, bag, the vacuum will press the fabric to the tool and compress it and then you'll cure the whole thing. So you'll keep pressure on it and that kind of spreads the resin out to all of the fabric and allows it to have that high strength. Uh, a lot of the times uh, we see we see vacuum bag made with prepreg material. A lot of the times you also see vacuum bag with pre-impregnated fabric. So it's kind of a sheet and you just lay the sheet over the tool, pull the vacuum and then heat it up in the, in the autoclave. Compression molding is going to be very similar it's just a double-sided tool instead of a single-sided. Filament winding and automated fiber placement are a little bit more advanced. Uh, in filament winding, it's going to be typically used for long tubes or, or very large tubes. And in this method, you, just, you have a mandrel that spins, and you just lay the strands over the mandrel as it spins around, and the strands are going to be your reinforcement. And you will either impregnate this as you're winding it, or impregnate the whole thing after you've laid it all up. So these would be really good for airplane fuselages, golf clubs, the shaft of a tennis racket, those sort of things. And it's a little bit easier because you don't have as much material processing or material handling. It's also really good for um, carbon overwrapped pressure vessels that you want to fill with hydrogen and then have explode or fill with helium and then have them explode inside of a high pressure locks environment <laughs> yes that too. so carbon overwrap pressure vessels are usually filament wound or tape wound the way that they're wound it's not just 
the way that you would wind up string typically it's actually cross wound around the mandrel yeah it's it's I like a, that badly it's like a ball of yarn as opposed to a roll of toilet paper there you go uh, yeah, yeah yeah i'm guessing that that's what actually contributes to most of the strength because if yeah. it was just wound up like toilet paper it wouldn't do much good or at least it would only do good in, in one direction ben do you happen to know anything about the patterns that they tend to wind these things in so the patterns are where it's get, where it gets really complicated i don't know as much about filament winding but if we talk about the same thing but think about pieces of tape uh it's just let's say carbon fiber but it's all aligned in one direction and you have a, a long ribbon of it uh, so if you're winding up the same thing with tape then you might want to line it up uh, on altering layers of 45 degrees or you might want to you might want to change up your, your layer overall. We call that a layup sequence. And your layup sequence defines the way that that part's going to take stress. So I mentioned before that you can tailor the load paths when you have laminates. And this is how you do that, is by laying up your, let's say, tape. You lay up your tape in the direction that you want to take the load so that it's really strong in the way that you need it, but it doesn't have to be strong in the other directions. But for, for something like a tank, it would need to be in all directions, really, right? Yes, but you don't need it to be as strong in all directions. So it depends on the tank shape. If you have a cylindrical tank, you're going to have hoop stress and you're going to have normal stress. And then it's going to, you're going to have different levels of stress at the middle of the tank and at the end caps. So you can change the direction, if, let's say you're wrapping it with tape. You can change the direction of the tape. You can even change how many layers of tape you put on there, depending on where you are and what your loads are. So that's kind of filament winding and fiber placement and tape length. Those are all pretty much the same. Uh, some more advanced methods, resin transfer molding. You can have a single or a double-sided tool here, kind of like our compression or our vacuum bag. And you lay down your fabric, and then you just inject the resin into it. It's kind of like injection molding, but if you're injecting into something that's already there. Mm, you're injecting it into a, into a void with, with the tape already in it, right? Yes. So I don't have any examples of this method, but uh, I know it's used in industry. I just don't have particular parts. It's probably some boring stuff that just needs to be really strong, and you make a lot of them. The probably more interesting area and more secretive area is out-of-autoclave methods. So if you want to make really large parts, you can imagine if you're going to put these in an autoclave, you have to have a really big autoclave. And really big autoclaves are really expensive. So it would be advantageous if you could do it and not need that big pressurized oven. So out of autoclave methods, there's a few ways that you can do this. I haven't found any sources on these except for some people mentioning them. But I know a lot of people, for example, when we saw the, the SpaceX BFR Starship whatever tubes, they were really large and they were out in a tent. And people were trying to figure out how they made those, and it was most likely an out-of-autoclave method. So when, when, you're curing a, when you're curing a laminate, you need pressure and you need heat. So we can utilize some thermal expansion to give us both the heat and the pressure. So if you're winding something on a tool, and that tool is metal, the metal is going to expand when you heat it up. If you have your carbon fiber on the outside, let's say, and you heat up the metal on the inside, the metal will push against all that carbon fiber and it'll give you the pressure that you need and the heat at the same time. So that's that's one method. I don't know if there's a name for it, but that's one way that you could conceivably do this. Another way is that you, instead of a metal tool, let's say you have a bladder on the inside and you can inflate that bladder and, and give you the pressure that you need to cure it instead of using the autoclave. You can also, if you want, you can wrap it up in a bunch of, uh, a bunch of shrink tape and just give pressure from the outside. 
So in general, you're just trying to get pressure and heat. So that's that's out of autoclave. There's a bunch more manufacturing methods, and these are mainly tailored to just laminates because those are the most common. But there's a lot more stuff, and I've linked uh, a textbook which is is really good, and it goes into detail on all of these different methods. So we talked about how great they are. We talked about how to make them, but there's actually a lot of challenges with composites, and we've kind of seen this also in news with SpaceX, where they're switching from composites to this new stainless design, and they they have their reasons. But some challenges for composites are going to be that that analysis and that design complexity. We were talking about tailoring load paths, and you need to know what the load is to know where to put material. So there's there's a lot of iteration that goes on there in the like on the drawing board before you even get any test parts. So it takes a it takes a lot of time to do that stuff. And the larger your structure, the more efficient it can be. But the more efficient it is, the more complicated it is. So it's it's a balance game there, and sometimes it's not worth it. There's also, we mentioned that composites don't expand very much when they're heated. Sometimes this is good, sometimes it's bad. Because if you have if you have a piece of carbon fiber attached to a metal, and you, let's say you just stick them both in an oven, the metal's going to expand, but the composite's not going to let it expand if it's joined together. So you're going to be pulling on the composite, and sometimes you don't want that. Another challenge is that composites generally have good fatigue and damage tolerance, but it's difficult to prove this and to test it. This is actually where a lot of my work lies right now for commercial, is is testing this stuff, and it takes a long time, and there's a lot of checkboxes to show that, that you can actually meet those requirements. So if you're talking about aviation that has a lot of regulation, it's going to be a lot harder or it's going to take a lot longer, it's going to be a lot more expensive to use some composites in these areas. Another challenge is manufacturing quality. So we talked about all of the manufacturing methods. You're laying them up, you're, you're putting them in a vacuum, you're heating them up, you're pressing them. There's a lot of steps there, and if you have any flaws inside of, of that part that you're laying up, it can drastically affect how strong that final product is. So you need very high quality when you're making these parts for them to be as effective as you need them. Yeah, it's interesting because like, relatively speaking, metal is pretty easy to work with, you know, at at high quality uh, standards, right? I mean, you you melt the metal down, you, uh, you know, make whatever shape block you're going to make, whether you're going to cast a part and then machine it or or just uh, casts an ingot and then and the machine or work with that ingot. But it's kind of like, you, you know, you melt things down, you make a shape, and then you cool the shape in a particular way, and then you take some stuff off of that shape. But with composites, like, you're having to build things up slowly and slowly, and there's so many different steps and, and variables that it, I mean, it, it really makes metal seem easy. It really does. And sometimes it's worth it, sometimes it's not. But that's the challenges that you're really dealing with, is how much attention you have to pay to, did I orient this piece of tape in the right direction? And is there a piece of dust in between these two layers? Mm. Or did I bring this up to the correct temperature and was it there for that for the correct amount of time? And that's all really complicated and it makes them very expensive to make. Uh, the final challenge uh, is environmental degradation. So this is probably what you'll hear referenced recently with Starship talking about the heat and, and the cold. So composites get very brittle at cold temperatures. They're already brittle at room temperature. They get even more brittle at cold and they get a little bit more plasticky at high temperatures and 
and high humidity. So sometimes you're fine with that, like in the rest of aviation, but for a spacecraft that might not be acceptable. So in general, com composites can be very advantageous, but you probably don't want to use them unless you really need them. So that's pretty much all I have. To go along with this, NASA, I think, did a, a series of videos that they called NASA 360, and they did one specifically on composite materials, and it kind of just talks about everything that we talked about here. I can't say I completely followed everything, but I think I got the gist of it. Uh, so yeah, thanks for coming on the show, and hopefully we'll have you back again, maybe to give us uh, lesson two in composite materials. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, I hope it's interesting. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events, no launches, just one engine test. Well, there was one last week, the Raptor, which was successful, but this is a different right. one. Yeah, totally. It's upcoming. Yeah, this is an RS-25, so uh, X space shuttle main engine. Uh, so this is happening on Wednesday the 13th, and of course it's happening at Stennis, but it, the airing, it's going to be airing on NASA TV at 3 p.m. Eastern time and uh should be loud yeah <laughs> it should be very very loud actually and that is your single upcoming space flight event all right and with that time to close out the show and deorbit the show and we would like to thank ronald jenkins and tim dodd for our music we record live on sundays at 9 a.m pacific 12 p.m eastern thank you so much to our five dollar and up patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly if you want to support the show too please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at the orbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit we're orbital podcasts on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at the orbitalmechanics.com all right so that's it we will see you next week on orbit until then later bye everybody see you